we first set out and made a kitchen gadget and really optimized the interaction. But as we hadn't planned, the building the scale actually served as a calling card. Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Each and Other, a podcast about designing for people and for business. In this episode, we're joined by Tim Redfern from the company Drop. Drop created weighing scales, which you can pair with any device and cook a delicious meal. And we're also joined by Billy Harney, one of our own UX designers who trained as a industrial designer in the NCAD before working in the UK for a number of years, designing watches and all sorts of other products. And what we're talking about here is bridging the gap between product and interface. And just a note, when we're talking about product, we're talking about hardware. We're not necessarily talking about software product. Uh, but I think it's a great conversation. Let's jump in. Um, so, Tim, I just want to start with you first. Can you talk a little bit about what the origins of Drop were? What was the kind of ch- the problem that you were trying to solve? Drop really came out of the back of an art project after we, we, we worked for a year building this, this huge interactive display on Liberty Hall. And we had to, I suppose, build a stack of technology about five layers deep to get that whole thing to work. After that, a few of us just got the idea in our heads to start a business. And our initial idea was, we'd like to make a gadget. We'd right. like to actually manufacture something and, and build it for real. Yeah. And we played around with various ideas. And the, the theme that we hit on that we thought was interesting was the idea of augmenting a, a mobile device by adding sensors mm-hmm. that would allow it to sense something that it doesn't natively um, support. Mm-hmm. But then, I suppose, from the sensor's point of view, you can create a very cheap product, which, when augmented with an app running on the device you already have, which is immensely powerful, you end up with a very um, powerful combination of interface, hardware, internet connectivity, and this new data point. So we thought that, that was a, a good niche to start, to start producing products. Uh, Cut a long story short, we tried a few different ones, mm-hmm. and the one we ended up making was kitchen scales. Yeah, and uh, um, we quickly re- quickly realised that we didn't want to be just a company with a chain of gadgets. That we were more interested in doing something really deep with the kitchen, and we could see some uh, interesting possibilities for creating a kind of a kitchen operating system that was revolved around content and tell us something though which is a a fundamental question which i never thought to ask before is why did you decide on was was that was the decision that arbitrary or are you kind of foodies that are really passionate about cooking or we are all we are all actually interested in cooking yeah um i suppose we had a, a bunch of different ideas and we decided to do the one that was both the easiest and had the most potential Billy, you have your own experience, obviously, of working in product design. How did you move from product design into UX and what's that journey been like? The journey into physical stuff was pretty straightforward. There was one answer and there was industrial design that seemed to tick, that might tick all of my key threads. So it was, that was an easy decision. But the journey through learning throughout my career was something else entirely. And it was less about the stuff you do every day and more about uh, learning about the marketplace and learning about what people or what we perceive people to desire um, and designing for that. And as I've shifted into digital now, we're more focused on u- users' needs and mm. uh, trying to speak to that. 
in product design, it's very rare to get to design something that includes any human factor element because most things are solved problems. And unless you're bringing in a new functionality or resolving a new problem, there is uh, so many patterns out there that we use that we can apply to um, solve the problem. You're destroying my uh, my magical thinking here in terms of my understanding of product design. I always imagine people are, are coming together like the elves, pushing <laughs> it further and further each time. Well, they do when something's changed. Okay. So 99.9% of work that's done is to uh, add on layers of desirability. So not functionality. Mm-hmm. So all the, uh, an awful lot of the functional aspects of products have been solved. Yes, They're solved problems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's this, uh, so 99% of the work done is to position that product within a marketplace. So you're able to sell to a wider audience. So there's a much stronger link there between marketing in a way, like much stronger, much stronger much umbilical stronger. link. Yeah, so I mean, this all goes back for me, this all goes back to the difference in selling between um, digital stuff and physical stuff. Once, I, once a company has sold a product, their relationship, a physical product, their relationship with that customer is done. There's some warranty stuff there in the background, but by and large, the relationship is done. As designers, we don't care either because we're told we get a tap in the Bing. back and you said you've done a great job. Well, I mean, you see sales and you see that you've done a good job um, and there's no business incentive to go out there to find out um, or to, to spend money to find out how things are actually working. Actually working. Yeah. Digital is more uh, service orientated whether it is a, a digital interface on the product or whether it is a, a web web software, there is an ongoing conversation even after sales and actually probably more so after sales. It's an interesting thing about inter- Internet of Things mm-hmm. that it actually brings that quality to physical products. Correct, yeah. Like, um, manufacturers can start to actually see how their products are used, when they're used, or more importantly, if they're never used. Yeah. It can also bring it right back to the famous um, idea that was ha- that um, Henry Ford had and he used to apparently go around to scrapyards looking at um, scrapped Ford cars. And he would go and look at, at, at the car that was there and see which parts had failed yeah. and more importantly which parts hadn't. And then he could use that as a way to know where they could cut corners. Yeah. I was going to say it's the first time anyone has brought Henry Ford and not said, hey, do you know what Henry Ford said? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the, the, the other thing that you're making me think about there, Billy, is this sort of strong emphasis on anthropology when it comes to user experience. That's something I was listening to a podcast with Tom Kelly from IDEO talking about design thinking last night. He was saying that that was the big change for them. The big shift was sort of uh, moving from a culture of engineering more towards a culture of anthropology. I mean, I you know, I think that is something maybe that product companies don't traditionally think about from what you're saying. And Tim, does that resonate with you in terms of where you come from? Or Very much so. Mm. I suppose our present experience is that we are working with product companies and helping to, or we found a niche in supplying something that they can't very easily do for themselves. Like we, we first set out and made a kitchen gadget and really optimized the interaction we imagined that was going to be our business model, which came sorely um, came to the realization that it wasn't going to work after we initially went through most of our money. But although we d- as we d- hadn't planned, the building the scales actually served as a calling card 
to introduce us to these companies when they said, hey, we really like what you've done with the interaction. You've actually made a physical thing. So we know you get real physical design. And now can you can you apply this understanding of the interaction of the, of the, the thing that emerges in between the physical gadget and the remote interface? Can you help us to think about that? What happens for product companies? Should they hire a UX team in-house? Do they go to consultants? Do, like you guys, I suppose, are filling that gap for them now. Yeah. I mean, how do they fit that into a very sort of traditional, say, cycle of, as Billy's saying, sales, but also production? How does that all stitch in, do you think? Well, one thing which really is a game changer is the fact that nearly all embedded computing devices nowadays have the ability to receive software updates. It means that actually, um, making final changes to software and fixes can now happen even after the product is shipped. Like potentially manufacturers can, can ship a product with only you know, the skeleton of working software and then they can get it all ready and have a, a software update ready to be downloaded by the, the uh, user when they first turn it on. Mm-hmm. Um, the frequency that happens is pretty shocking. In other words, Every appliance company sets out going, we're not going to demand the user to install install new software the second they unbox the device. We're not going to be that kind of company who leaves things to the last minute. And yes, it always are. happens. <laughs> it always <laughs> happens. Like our, our weighing scale is needed in order to update right. um, when we first launched it. Every Internet of Things product I have set up has installed an update when it first got, got going. It'll probably always be the case. Um, it also, I suppose, raises questions about things like security updates, you know, about the, the risk of like software that you thought was perfectly fit for purpose, suddenly, you know, springing a leak that urgently needs to be fixed. Uh-huh. And you've also got the idea of being able to add features or, you know, fix things or improve things after something has, has actually left your hands, mm-hmm. which is a very, very different way of looking at the world. Right, yeah, because obviously in the world of software, you've launched something, but it's never finished, and it's out in the wild, and yeah. people are exploring it and so on, and it's being tested live. Of course, with updates, you also have the, um, the possibility of breaking a device as well. Hardware companies have never had to think in those, in those lines. They've, sure. they've never had to think about things like internet security, hacking, botnets, um, devices being, you know, Hijack. I mean, there's been some pretty funny stories and some real horror stories um, with Internet of Things devices. But um, to have a bit of a laugh, have a read of the um, penetration testing company review of the AGA Internet of Things oven. It's kind of ironic because um, AGA would have been impenetrable <laughs> yeah. previous it, to... It uh, turns out the way, the way to control it is via sending it um, SMS messages. The only, the only way of stopping someone, the, the wrong person, from controlling the Zag oven is just that they wouldn't know what phone number to send the SMS message to. That's amazing. And nobody would, no hacker would think anything could be that crude. One topic I suppose we haven't talked about here, and it feels like the elephant in the room, is voice. It's very clear that a hands-free interaction with a computer platform is very, very good match for somebody who's trying to access an information system while they've got flowery fingers. When people first look at voice interfaces, their initial designs have very poor usability. Like the kinds of things you can do through voice 
are quite different to the way you can interact visually. Mm -hmm. And the majority of developers who have jumped on the bandwagon and started um, developing for voice have really, you know, done research for for Amazon and ended up releasing things that very few people are ever going to use. Yeah. Is it sort of engineering? The things that work really with a voice interface are the things which your total interaction is between one and three sentences. There's right. people who are design, designing voice systems where you're supposed to be able to browse a whole catalogue of recipes and follow a recipe mm -hmm. all by keeping in your head what you're doing. Like for me, it doesn't work. For anyone out there who is in a business that is uh, traditionally product-led and in terms of sort of hardware-led, I should say, um, what advice would you have for them, Tim, in terms of moving towards a sort of interface, uh, user experience and so on? Look at some products. There's some very good examples. For me, um, I suppose the Nest thermostat is one of the best examples of something which is designed incredibly simply, um, fulfills a real need and looks and functions really nicely into the bargain. What UX gives a product is range. So products are traditionally a fixed thing, but UX gives a product longevity and range. And we see that with all the additional uh, paths that are leading to the environment that Nest has created. Okay, wonderful. So much more sort of an ecosystem, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, you know, a uh, much more sort of a long-term relationship with the customer. It's not just like you know what happens after sale is is very important, obviously, in software, and it's going to become increasingly important, it seems, in, in hardware as well. So I'd like to thank you both. Thank you, Tim, for dropping in to talk about this. Billy, thanks so much also for lending no your wise words. Thanks. Thank you.